Disclaimer. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the subject. These stories are told from their perspective, and their authenticity should be assessed on a case-by-case basis. This episode of True Spies was adapted from an investigation published on YouTube by Alexei Navalny. We've used the translated transcript of Navalny's video to bring you a heavily abridged adaptation of the investigation. For the full subtitled version from Navalny's team, click the link in the episode description. Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. One. Один. Always say one thing and do another. Two. Два. Corruption is the foundation of trust. Three. Three. And the most important thing, there is never too much money. These are Putin's principles. These are the basis of the Russian state. This is True Spies. Episode 43. Putin's Palace. This is a story unlike any that we featured on True Spies, because we genuinely don't know how it ends. We uh, came up with this investigation when I was in intensive care, but uh, we immediately agreed that we would release it when I returned home. It's a story that could have truly global ramifications. Our future is in our hands. Do not be silent. At its heart lies one of the world's most powerful men. This man in his craving for luxury and wealth has gone completely mad. And the activist who's determined to bring him down. Hi, it's Navalny. On the 20th of August, 2020, Russian politician and anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny was poisoned with Novichok, a Soviet-era nerve agent. To many, Navalny represents the only credible opposition to Russia's government. 44 years old, a lawyer and an anti-corruption activist, He spent over a decade loudly condemning its president, Vladimir Putin, who reportedly refuses to say Navalny's name aloud. Most Western onlookers, including several governments, believe that Navalny's poisoning is directly related to his political activity. The Kremlin does appear to have form for this. Listen back to episode 16 of True Spies, N is for Novichok, for a recent example. After displaying symptoms of poisoning while traveling on a domestic Russian flight, Alexei Navalny was medically evacuated to Berlin, where he eventually made a slow and painful recovery. There was a really unpleasant period in the hospital when I uh, just started to get out of bed. A chair was dragged to the sink. I'd sat on a chair to wash. On January the 17th, 2021, he returned to Russia where he was immediately detained by the authorities for violating his probation on an earlier sentence. Charges which his supporters say have been trumped up by the government. Shortly after his return, Navalny's dedicated team of activists released a truly incendiary video. 
an investigation into alleged corruption at the very top of Russian society. Corruption that they claim is embodied by one extraordinary building on the coast of the Black Sea, a billion-dollar property that Navalny claims is owned by Russia's president and funded through nefarious means. President Putin denies a connection to the building. Arkady Rottenberg, a Russian billionaire with close ties to the president, has claimed ownership. Navalny's team have put in months of research and risked arrest to try and disprove that claim. And no, to our knowledge, Navalny is not a spy, not in the sense that he's employed by an intelligence agency. He's a politician, and like most politicians, he'll use anything he can to gain an advantage over his opponent. His investigation relied upon rigorous tradecraft to gather information that would discredit the sitting president. This is good old-fashioned dirt digging on an unimaginable scale. Navalny and his team convinced sources to talk, tracked down important documents, and even employed a little bit of gadgetry. These are skills that are familiar to spies, whistleblowers, and journalists alike. They're skills that you could learn, too. Within two weeks, the film racked up over 100 million views on YouTube. That's well over half the world's Russian-speaking population. On the 23rd of January 2021, it sparked mass anti-government protests in several Russian cities. Since then, hundreds of protesters have been detained. The film was not only an investigation, but also a psychological portrait. I really wanted to understand how an ordinary Soviet officer turned into a madman who's obsessed with money and literally ready to destroy the country and kill for the sake of his chests of gold. Navalny was sentenced to nearly three years of imprisonment on the 2nd of February, 2021. We've used an actor to represent him here. But the words are his, or those of a member of his team, translated from the original Russian. Returning to Russia was, realistically, never going to end well for Navalny. Not in the short term, anyway. So you might very well ask, why come back at all? We do not want the main character in this investigation to think that we are afraid of him or that I would reveal his worst secret while I'm abroad. Because we saw what is considered impossible to see up close. We went where no one is allowed. We found out how, over the past 15 years, the biggest bribe in history is being given. The biggest bribe in history? Think about it. What might that look like to you? A few large attaché cases, stuffed with cash. Ones and zeros on a Swiss banker's computer terminal? Think again. It is the world's largest residential construction project. The most secret and guarded facility in Russia, without exaggeration. According to Navalny, that bribe is a palace. Although even that word doesn't quite do it justice. Can you imagine the Principality of Monaco? It is small, but still a separate country. Well, this is a property the size of 39 principalities of Monaco. Navalny's sources indicate that smartphones and cameras are banned inside the sprawling complex. Arriving vehicles are meticulously inspected at multiple checkpoints by armed guards. And you'd be lucky to get that far. The palace, 
located on Russia's Black Sea coast, is almost impossible to reach by land, sea or air. Not without permission, anyway. It looks like somebody really doesn't want the general public snooping around on their property. By now, you've probably got a very good idea of who Navalny believes that might be. The most devoted admirer of our work, the man on whose orders I was poisoned, Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin is one of the world's most powerful men. He's also allegedly one of its richest. Nobody really knows exactly how rich, but those who guess count in billions, if not tens of billions. He's been at the head of the Russian government since 1999. This palace on the coast is, if it is his property, the most obvious expression of his vast wealth and influence. But behind the edifice of power, who is Vladimir Putin? And how did he get to where he is today? A big part of Navalny's investigation was dedicated to making that information public. In doing so, he hoped that the Russian people, many of whom venerate their president as the savior of a failed state, might begin to think twice about lending him their support. Navalny says, if you really want to get to know Vladimir Putin, you need to go back to 1985, to Dresden, East Germany, a country in thrall to Soviet Russia. Putin, a petty KGB officer who now masquerades as this great spy, came to Dresden in 1985. He wants us to think of him as this cool infiltrator. It's true that Putin's made no secret of his time in the KGB, Soviet Russia's most famous intelligence agency. Among the various aspects of his macho public image, see topless horseman, judo champion, swashbuckling archaeologist, suave super spy fits in rather well. But in fact, he was an ordinary employee, not even of a secret residency, but of the official representative office of the KGB in East Germany. This building uh, was a warm place where a bunch of idlers like Putin sat at party meetings and awarded each other with mementos, just like they do now. So less bond, more male bonding. Putin didn't get rich in Dresden, but that's not to say he wasted his time there. In espionage, as in business, contacts are everything. He met with the people who would later become his main wallets. For example, Sergei Viktorovich Chimezov, now the head of the Rostec state-owned corporation. He served alongside Putin. Today, Chemezov is a billionaire civil servant. And then there is Nikolai Tokarev, who shared an office with Chimezov. Nikolai Tokarev is the head of Transneft, the largest oil pipeline company in the world. It too is state-owned. The president-to-be wouldn't stay in Dresden. Within a decade of arriving in the city, the Soviet Union collapsed. He loves to remember how he experienced the collapse of the USSR. He condemns the 90s, Yeltsinism, Democrats, calls everyone around him foreign agents. But in those days, Putin took off like Greece Lightning to work for one of the main Democrats of those times, the radical critic of the USSR, Anatoly Sobchak, the mayor of St. Petersburg. In St. Petersburg, Navalny alleges that Putin discovered a latent talent for corruption. He found himself in a position where there's something to steal, uh, where bribes are given. St. Petersburg seaport was a bustling center of illegal trade in the early 90s. 
Organized criminals took advantage of the chaos left in the wake of the Soviet collapse. Bandits will be bandits, but uh, all sorts of papers and permits still needed to be signed and executed. And who was in charge of signing those papers? Well, take a wild guess. He served the interest and was a helpful assistant in the mayor's office. He could help real tough guys solve their problems. These were the years in which a corrupt official with a taste for the finer things could really start to make some money. Especially if said official could facilitate the export of raw materials. At that time, the cash-strapped Russian government was offloading its assets to private interests, and all at bargain basement prices. There was money to be made by an enterprising business person, if they knew which palm to grease. If it was necessary to formalize something, they needed to come to the Foreign Relations Committee, listen to a ceremonial speech about the importance of economic partnership, and then Putin simply wrote on a piece of paper the required amount of kickback, and added that the money needed to be registered with, that is brought to, his assistant Alexei Miller. Today, Alexei Miller needs no introduction. For almost 20 years, he's been heading our national treasure, Gazprom. Gazprom, a natural gas multinational, is the largest company in Russia. Again, the Russian state owns a majority share. Alexei Miller is clearly better at registering bribes than he is at running a state-owned company. In 2008, he boasted that in seven to eight years, Gazprom would become the most valuable company in the world with a capitalization of a trillion dollars. At that moment, Gazprom was worth 360 billion. 12 years have passed, and the capitalization of Gazprom is about 70 billion. That is, it did not grow. It decreased by five times. Nearly $300 billion of value gone. Keep listening. You might start forming your own ideas about where those missing billions might have vanished to. Navalny claims that Putin's position at the mayor's office also allowed him access to a place to store his burgeoning wealth. The Rossiya Bank was founded in St. Petersburg by the Communist Party. But in 1991, the party ceased to exist, and the mayor was ordered to reorganize the bank, managing its assets and creating a normal commercial structure that would help the city's economy. The mayor delegated this role to one of his most promising protégés, Vladimir Putin, who proved himself more than capable. In the early 90s, Russia was just a small bank controlled by the mayor's office. And now it's this giant banking monster that serves the country's main corrupt officials and keeps Putin's personal money too. As the turbulent 90s wore on, Putin's star continued to rise. Eventually, a contact from St. Petersburg secured him a job in Boris Yeltsin's administration. Eventually, he took on a role which involved monitoring corruption within the government. What an irony. The main corrupt officials of those times pondered who should be appointed to the position of inspector in administration. Who will check but diligently ignore corruption? Putin continued to climb the ranks. In 1998, Navalny claims that the future president was summoned back to Moscow from a six-week holiday in Cannes to take over as head of the FSB, Russia's domestic intelligence service, 
We are surprised at the current degradation of special services and uh, rampant corruption. But why should we be surprised if already in 98, an official whose family has been living for a month and a half in a hotel on the French Riviera was appointed head of the main special service? It's clear that thieves like him made him the director of the FSB so that he could solve their problems. Navalny says, because remember, these are all allegations, you're only hearing one side of the story, that Putin did exactly as he was supposed to do as head of the FSB. That is, to help corrupt officials evade responsibility for their actions. But how exactly? Well, here's an example. The FSB knows several ways to neutralize a whistleblower. Alexei Navalny believes that some of them involve toxic chemicals. And some of them involve compromat, compromising material. The then Prosecutor General Skuratov was gunning for the Yeltsin family, accusing them of theft and bribes. To neutralize Skuratov, the FSB organized a whole operation, the result of which was the showing on federal television of the famous tape with a man similar to the Prosecutor General. The broadcast came with a helpful disclaimer for citizens of a delicate disposition. You will now see a man very similar to the Prosecutor General of the Russian Federation in the company of some call girls. We must warn you, this should not be watched by people under 18. The hapless prosecutor came under immense pressure to resign. Which is what happened. Skuratov was removed from office. The corrupt Yeltsin family was saved. And literally four months later, realizing that they could not find a more reliable and appropriate person and spirit, it was the Yeltsin family who made Putin the successor. First the prime minister, and then the president of Russia. Two decades later, he still is. All these are old, well-known stories described by journalists, not even many years later, but right during Putin's service in the St. Petersburg mayor's office. There were scandals, parliamentary investigations, and reports on corruption all around him. The newspapers wrote about Putin. These days, writing critically about Putin inside Russia might be considered foolish, or at least ill-advised. Which is why it's so remarkable that if his report is to be believed, Navalny risked exposing one of the president's most valuable and controversial assets, the palace. As soon as Putin established himself in power, after he subjugated television and the courts and established a system of electoral fraud, the largest operation to seize and milk Russia began. It continues to this day. A gang of bribe-takers and crooks from the St. Petersburg mayor's office seized all the key posts and declared themselves brilliant managers and saviors of Russia. But despite the fact that our heroes got suited up and surrounded themselves with hundreds of guards, the key principle has stayed the same since the 90s. You want to steal from the budget and milk state property? Okay, but share with Putin. In St. Petersburg, Putin wrote relatively small amounts in dollars on a piece of paper and Alexei Miller collected them for him. This time he wrote a word on the piece of paper. And that word was palace. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. 
You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Much of Navalny's dangerous investigation into the palace involved rigorous journalistic work, convincing sources to talk, tracking down important documents, skills that are familiar to reporters all over the world. But this is true spies, and it wouldn't be the same without a little bit of field work in the mix. The more practical aspect of Navalny's investigation began in Krasnodakrai, a southwestern region of the Russian Federation on the Black Sea coast. In the video, we see three members of Navalny's team crossing a body of water in a small dinghy. This footage was taken before his return to Russia. My team was literally three kilometers from Putin's palace in the Krasnodarkrai. But gaining access to the palace isn't as simple as launching an inflatable boat. They went there in a very strange way. If you're working for Navalny, it's hard enough to get to the beach in the first place. They changed tickets, got off at the wrong stops, swapped SIM cards and phones. All this was done so that they don't get pursued by the police, FSB officers, Center E. Center E. That's Russia's anti-extremism division. Members of the country's opposition parties claim that its agents routinely harass them for their views. They always come after us when we come to Krasnodar Krai. No, this wasn't Team Navalny's first attempt at getting close to the palace. It is so classified that it is guarded by the Federal Security Service. Everyone said it was impossible to film it. We thought so ourselves. Then we went ahead and tried it. Didn't work, so we tried it again. We tried four times, but we only succeeded once. The plan was simple. Get close to the palace. Fly a drone into the complex. Analyze the footage at leisure. They were a few hundred meters from the shore, and not a single policeman for tens of kilometers around knew what they were doing there. And the footage is breathtaking. As the drone soars over a thick coastal forest, an ornate mansion emerges from the foliage. A helpful graphic illustrates its size at 190,424 square feet. That's equivalent to three American football fields with room to spare. The most luxurious houses in Moscow are several times smaller. This is the new Versailles, or the new Winter Palace, a truly royal place. But as the drone flies in closer, the careful observer might notice a few cracks in the opulent facade, literally. 
So what's going on here? There's some kind of blue tarp on the roof, the windows are corked, the pool is closed, the building materials are lying on the ground, there are workers running about. Satellite images dating from six years before Navalny's audacious drone flight showed that the structure had been completed. So we ask ourselves, what's happening? Why is there a construction site? Navalny's team claimed to have convinced some of the builders who had worked on the project to talk to them. The builders explained it to us. Everything was really ready a long time ago, but then disaster struck. Mold. Mold and sloppiness. See, the palace was designed with mistakes. Uh, ventilation did not work, the ceiling leaked, high humidity. So they decided to redo everything. Absolutely everything. They stripped the walls, stripped off the marble, took out everything of value, literally threw billions into the trash and started all over again. This colossal waste was bad news for the owner of the palace. But for Navalny and his team, it opened up new channels of information from inside the building site. A lot of people were involved in the reconstruction and they were happy to tell us about literally every square meter of this palace. In the drone footage, it's possible to identify some of the most impressive facilities mentioned by those chatty builders. For example, the Arboretum, full of rare and unique trees. And for those plants that are uncomfortable in such a climate, a 27,000 square foot greenhouse was built in the open air. The gardens employ around 40 gardeners. And there really is something for everyone. Beyond the gardens to the rear of the palace, Navalny's team were able to identify helipads, a church, an 80-foot bridge leading to a tea room, even an underground hockey rink. Who needs a palace in which you cannot play hockey? This is the first time we see the underground hockey complex, though. The owner's bunkering style is recognized. He likes to sit underground. And yes, there's more below the surface. The contractors confirmed to us that they buried an ice palace underground which is actually the height of a five-story building. As the drone continues its pass over the palace grounds, the list goes on. A vast boiler room, workers' accommodation, an amphitheater, a wine-tasting room carved into the cliffside overlooking the sea. Not to mention the nearby winery and vineyards that allegedly supply top-quality booze to Kremlin banquets. Navalny claims that these two are providing income to the owner of the palace. But there's only so much a drone can show you. Sometimes you need a man on the inside. Let's talk interior design. One of the important contractors who worked on the arrangement of the palace was so stunned and enraged by the luxury of the decoration and the insane prices of the furniture that he sent us a detailed architectural plan. It has everything, from a drawing of floor patterns to the item codes of all the pieces of furniture. We could literally see what kind of sofas Vladimir Putin sits on, what bed he lies on, what table he eats at. As you can probably imagine, none of this comes cheap. Navalny claims that other interesting features include toilet paper holders worth $1,200, a coffee table worth over $57,000, and something called an aqua discotheque. What we do know is that it would cost the average Russian citizen a month's salary to hang their toilet paper in truly palatial style. Navalny and his team claim that they were able to verify the disgruntled contractor's intel by cross-referencing the architectural plans 
with images from an earlier leak about the palace. This leak had come from someone who had been intimately involved in the early stages of the palace project. His name is Sergei Kolesnikov. In 2010, Sergei Kolesnikov published an open letter calling on President Medvedev to end Putin's corruption. Kolesnikov, as a person involved in the palace construction project, told literally everything. Where is what is being built, on whose money and whose name it is registered, all the machinations with offshore companies, parishes, everything. He published documents, postings, contracts, audio recordings of negotiations between builders and sponsors. It all happened 10 years ago, and to be honest, there have probably been no leaks of this magnitude and reliability since then. Klesnikov also spoke about an investment fund which took donations from billionaire oligarchs. So Putin will take these kickbacks from all these oligarchs, but uh, patriotically invest them in Russian enterprises that are in decline. Then he can take credit for it and earn political points. But uh, they also agreed that a palace would be built with this money. For what it's worth, the oligarchs who invested in the fund denied that they knew exactly where their money was going. And when the investment fund was first formed, Money really was invested in Russian industries and infrastructure. After some time, the main liaison from Putin and the person in whose name the palace was registered gave the order to shut down all investment projects except for the palace. After that, Navalny claims, the investment fund functioned as a giant wallet. Oligarchs put money in. The palace sucked it out. A few years later, the story told by Kolesnikov was confirmed by the famous Panama Papers. And further investigations claimed that this wasn't the only money-making ruse to contribute to the palace coffers. Journalists discovered that our state bought expensive medical equipment at a price much higher than the market price. The difference between the prices remained with the intermediaries, who eventually transferred it to the accounts of Lanfranco Cirillo, the Italian architect of Putin's palace. So we literally paid taxes in order to treat those who fell ill with this money, but they took the money and spent it on Putin's palace. So thank you very much. But as we know, neither this leak or the 2010 leaks stopped this multi-billion ruble construction project. If Putin wants a palace, Putin will get a palace. But things couldn't go ahead completely unhindered. The owners of the palace needed to wash their hands of the scandal. So, the palace was sold. It was purchased by a businessman with links to Putin's inner circle. Alexander Ponomarenko gave several interviews where he said, yes, I bought it for myself, I will build a hotel there. And he even confirmed to reporters that he bought the palace for about $350 million. He also mentioned that he registered the purchase to his Cypriot offshore company. This is the kind of detail that a good investigator can work with. We opened the financial statements of this offshore company to verify the sale. We find 2011 and see that there was indeed a purchase. But the palace was bought not for $350 million, but for $350,000, or 10 million rubles at that rate. That's the price of a two-bedroom apartment in suburban Moscow. So this is an absolutely fictitious deal. They did not even bother to transfer real money. They simply appointed a special rich man who will be considered the owner of the palace. As a result, 
Today's casual observer would find it difficult to draw links between the owners and managers of the property and Vladimir Putin. But Navalny continued to do his homework. For every individual linked with the palace in 2020, through management roles, funding or otherwise, he claims that he always found links with the president. So, no matter how much we get told that this object belongs to a certain businessman, this is a blatant lie. And he didn't stop there. He says that he was also able to identify the hand of the Russian state itself in the winding paper trail that leads to the palace. The land around the palace complex is 68 hectares, but the surrounding territory is about a hundred times larger. This land plot, forests, mountains with an area of 7,000 hectares or 753 million square feet, belongs to the FSB, the intelligence service. Navalny claims that in 2020, the land was leased by the FSB to the company that owns the palace, ostensibly for research and educational activities. In fact, it's to create something like a buffer around Putin's palace, so that no one can, uh, while accidentally walking through beautiful places, come too close to the fence of the secret object. And that buffer doesn't just count on the ground. Usually, in order to go to sea on any boat, be it an inflatable boat or even a yacht, you need to follow a simple procedure. You call the local border department of the FSB and notify it about your plans by phone. Normally, it's a formality. You can fish and swim pretty much anywhere, but uh, not here. In Navalny's video, we see a member of his team making a call to the FSB's border department. It goes something like this. We want to go from Janhot to Krenica, uh, around that area. Okay, that's possible under strict conditions. Do you know Cape Edekopas? Sort of. Is it after Parus Rock? Yes, after the rock. There's a large cape. You will have to go around it by a mile. A mile? Was there an accident there? No, we just request that you go around this particular section by a mile. Please keep your distance. Is it always like this? Always. So, because of Putin's holiday home, all fishermen are simply sent around it by two kilometers from the coast. And all this is so that no one accidentally sees up close what is built there on this Idokapas Cape. And unless you've managed to sneak a drone across to the Cape, you can't visit the palace by air either. Above it is the official no-fly zone URP-116, just like with nuclear power plants or secret military facilities. Helpfully, the Russian Ministry of Transport was able to provide Navalny with the address and telephone number for those who enforce the no-fly zone. So we thought, let's Google the address. And it turns out that it's either an online store that's responsible for the no-fly zone or the board of directorate of the FSB for the Krasnodar Krai. Hmm, which do you think is more likely? And perhaps there's only one reason that the FSB would establish a no-fly zone over what is, ostensibly, a private residence. This is the palace of the very person for whose safety the FSB is responsible. Thanks to Alexei Navalny, we know a little more about who Vladimir Putin is and if he is the true owner of the Black Sea Palace, how he might like to live. And if Navalny's findings are reliable, they suggest that Putin could be using the full power of the Russian state to obfuscate and secure his assets. 
But how would the president fund such a project? In his video, Navalny dives deep into what he claims are the machinations of Putin's alleged business partners, how they divert funds into the president's pockets using shell companies, tax-free non-profit companies, and private accountancy firms. It's just like in the books you read about the mafia. Putin's businessmen pay tribute to their boss, who spends this money at his own discretion. Many of those businessmen have something in common. They worked in St. Petersburg in the 1990s. They had dealings with the mayor's office. Others knew the president from his time at university. These contacts head companies that are partially or completely owned by the state. Companies like Transneft, the oil pipeline giant headed by Putin's old colleague, Nikolai Tokarev. Transneft is one of the largest sponsors of the construction of Putin's palace. Over the past three years, and this is only according to the most conservative estimates and very incomplete data that we have at our disposal, 35 billion rubles have been transferred to the accounts of the palace and vineyards. And remember, according to Navalny, that's just one company's contribution to Putin's slush fund. If you ask for the total price of Putin's palace, the answer to this question will not be easy to give, uh, because such objects with uh, tunnels carved into rocks and underground hockey rings are simply not for sale. But we can estimate the minimum cost, uh, how much money was spent on it. In total, 100 billion rubles. That is why we call it the world's biggest bribe. Putin's friends, who received from him the right to steal whatever they wanted in Russia, thanked him a lot. But in particular, they chipped in, collected 100 billion rubles, and built a palace for their boss with this money. That's one billion, 380 million, 500,000 dollars. And what if I told you that this is just a small part of what really exists? After all, the needs of our humble president are not at all limited to the Black Sea Palace. What about the relatives? You do not expect that they, like some ordinary people, will live on a salary. Everyone needs a place to live. Everyone needs a plane. Everyone needs a yacht. All this must be paid for. Alexei Navalny is paying his own price for his fractious relationship with Vladimir Putin. This investigation and his return to Russia has already cost him dearly. On the 2nd of February, 2021, Navalny was sentenced to nearly three years in a Russian penal colony. Outside the courtroom, protesters jostled with security services, demanding his release. The palace investigation has certainly helped to boost his profile, both internationally and among voters. And at his next press conference, Putin himself will declare, as usual, this isn't an investigation, it's a legalization of the materials of American secret services. There's no doubt that American intelligence services have a presence in Russia. But as far as we can tell, Navalny and his collaborators have only used the resources that are available to a diligent team of journalists and private investigators. In fact, his movement claims transparency is a cornerstone of its philosophy. It's certainly not a quality that governments always hold in high regard. Vladimir Putin denies all allegations made against him by Alexei Navalny. The great Russian writer Leo Tolstoy once very clearly described the structure of power in Russia. The villains who robbed the people gathered together 
recruited soldiers and judges to guard the orgy. And now they are feasting. According to Navalny and his colleagues, the spirit of Tolstoy's Russia is very much in vogue. The villains robbed the people. They recruited judges, the National Guard and FSB officers to protect their palaces while they themselves sit and play in their personal casinos. And they will never voluntarily leave power. They will never have enough. On the contrary, they will steal more and more until the whole country is ruined. Russia is still selling oil, gas, metals, fertilizer, timber in huge quantities and uh, the income of the population keeps declining. We don't know how this story will end. But after Navalny's January 2021 arrest, ordinary Russians took to the streets to protest in significant numbers. And Russians have toppled their leaders before. We will only live normally when we stop tolerating officials who steal, stop re-electing them. And if they refuse to hold fair elections, then we'll take to the streets and remove them from power that way. We have reached the point where it is no longer a group of people who rob the state. The state itself has turned into an instrument of theft. The good news is there's still many, many more of us than there is of them. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Alexei Navalny was voiced by Konstantin Kissin. Disclaimer. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the subject. These stories are told from their perspective and their authenticity should be assessed on a case-by-case basis. True Spies has no relationship with Alexei Navalny or any group affiliated with him. Join us next week for another encounter with True Spies. We all have valuable spy skills and our experts are here to help you discover yours. Get an authentic assessment of your spy skills created by a former head of training at British Intelligence at spyscape.com. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.